All right, so again, page 38, we are uh, in the middle of page 38, those fill in the blanks right there, I'm going to give those to you again um, as we get into this, but uh, that's where we'll be going into Ephesians 1 here momentarily. But to summarize what we talked about last week from Romans 8, 28 through 30, we learned that man is passive in all pre-earthly activity of God, including election and predestination. Uh, You didn't exist at that time. You came into existence later on, after God created the world. And before God created the world, we hear about this election and predestination stuff. So God is active in that, and man is passive in that. And we also learned that a group of individuals from the whole is chosen. A group of individuals from the whole is predestined, glorified, they are justified, they are called, they are chosen. Okay, yeah, so essentially someone who rejects Jesus Christ couldn't be adopted through Jesus Christ because they've rejected Jesus Christ. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, you you can't be a Christian if you're rejecting Jesus and you're not adopted by God. All Christians are adopted by God because of His sovereign grace and their faith in Jesus Christ. And so this is a really important juncture to help you understand what's being said in this passage. It's really critical that you get some of these basic things down. Who's doing what? When all this is happening? Who's doing what to whom? Okay. Now, I would say that the, the more um, precise way that we could say this is that the us in verse 5 are those who will become Christians, who will be born again, the chosen ones. Okay. He predestined those whom he chose. Those whom he chose, he predestined. This is the language that we get in the New Testament. And all who are predestined will become Christians. All of those whom God has chosen will be born again in this life, even though they're born in sin, just like the rest. There will come a point in time when God reaches down and saves those people. And those people are the ones who become Christians. Okay, now that's an important thought. And we're going to come back to that here in this lesson. And these are two ways to look at this, okay? Two ways to consider what's going on with this whole how God chooses. Okay, one way says the first thing that happens is God chooses. And the second thing that happens is man believes. Because of this. Okay, there's a causal relationship. Cause, effect. The other way of looking at this is man believes and then God chooses. Now, um, as it's articulated, as Stan was just saying there, uh, this would not be God waiting until until we're born to see what we would do and then choose us after we choose Him. But instead, God from eternity past looked down into the future and saw who would choose him, and then he chose them based on that. But again, we have to see, if you take this view, this is also a cause and effect relationship, where man's choice essentially becomes the cause of God's choosing. So two very different ways of looking at this. I don't know why I did the bullet points. I don't know if that's very helpful. But uh, two different views. One says God's choice comes first, and it will result in man's faith for those whom he's chosen. The other one says, man chooses God, and that, in effect, creates 
him as an elect person, a predestinated person, because God knew that that person would choose him. So two different ways of handling that, and we're going to come back to that and explain it in more detail. Well, um, so there are two different ways of answering that. It depends on what we mean by God choosing. So if you're talking about this Ephesians 1 type of God choosing, I don't see anywhere in Scripture where someone predestined by God is able to thwart that. Okay? But, on the other hand, you have this amazing passage where Jesus is talking to his disciples in the Gospel of John, and he says, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Judas. So, Judas was technically chosen, wasn't he? He was one of the disciples, and he rejected that. So, but, but what you would have to say then is, if you're holding a view where it says, okay, on the one hand, no, man cannot thwart. On the other hand, yes, he can. You would look at the Judas incident and say, with Judas, he was never predestined before the foundation of the, of the world because that choosing of God cannot be thwarted. But for God's purposes, when God was incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, for his purposes, he allowed one of his disciples to be a devil. And so uh, that's how you try to strike a balance between those two concepts. Well, that's quite the statement to make without defending it. You think you're free, Joe? Can you fly? We're very limited, actually, aren't we? <clears throat> what about them? Yeah, or to use a Romans 9 example, Jacob and Esau. One was and one wasn't. And it was according to God's choice. And it even says in Romans 9, before the two were born and had done anything... He had set apart Jacob. Yes, I, I mean, we uh, talked through this a little bit. So there are different ways of viewing it. One is the, um, you know, when you say accept God and then reject God, are you talking about like being a Christian and then later they renunciate, renounce, thank you, Christianity, that kind of thing? So there is such a thing called apostasy. The Bible's very clear about that. That is something that happens. Um, there's also, um, there are people who have a profession of faith that's essentially hollow and they bump up against life circumstances and they lose that profession of faith where they never really were that committed, but they made a profession and then later on they fell away. So Jesus's parable about the, uh, the sower went out to sow the four different soils. I think that would point to that type of thing. Yet apostasy, you can see people who are very involved in churches, they are leaders in churches, and they are writer, authors of books, all kinds of things, and then they renounce the faith, they become apostates. Um, now that is a, a, a mystery, it's an absolute mystery. Yeah. All right, well that's, um, we will come back to that, okay, we're getting a little bit away from Ephesians, it's a... Fantastic question, and we will come back to that. It is in the series of this theology series. We'll talk about apostasy, particularly as it has to do with eschatology, the end times, because we're promised that in the end, there will be a great apostasy. And it says God will send them a, a spirit of delusion so as to not believe, but to believe a lie. Now, that's pretty wild. Apostates? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's one of the sad realities of going to Bible college or seminary. You get to know people, and um, you're studying Scripture together, and you're with these people for you know, a few years, 
and they go off to ministry, everybody goes their different ways, and you follow each other, and then you find out later, oh, well, this person has renounced everything. And it's, um, it's really, really sad. Extremely sad. Yep. Well, do you remember my answer to all the why questions? Is glorifying himself, right? So when we ask, why God? What's the purpose here, God? The ultimate answer is always, God is glorifying himself. Now, again, if he were a creature like us, if God were a man, that would be extremely inappropriate. Okay? That's egocentric, that's selfish, that's prideful. But because God is the eternal creator of all things, in whom is no shadow or variation, he is perfectly pure through and through, he's eternally holy, it is only right that he glorify himself. Okay? So when we have a question like that, we have to start with, God is in the business of glorifying himself, and this is how he's seen fit to do it. Now, when we get into specifics of, can we get more than that? You know, can you, does the Bible give us any more as to why he creates certain people if they're never going to believe and he knows it? Um, we can get more specific, and the answer to that will really test how committed we are to Scripture. Um, so, for instance, one answer to that would be he's demonstrating his perfect justice by condemning sin, judging sin, pouring out his wrath on sin, demonstrating himself to be a God who is absolutely, totally against what is evil and what is wrong. And he does that when he hands people over to their sin. Romans chapter 1 says the wrath of God is currently revealed that way. He shows that by the existence of the lake of fire. Kind of a answer. But, well, we're not coming here, right? There's no pre-existence. Um, we are made, and we're made here. And later, as Christians, we get to go there. But yeah, I mean, it is, it is a very uh, challenging thing for our faith. I mean, it tests, are we committed to what God has revealed about himself and his purposes? And uh, we have to accept, I mean, this is the Romans 9 thing that Paul's addressing in Romans chapter 9, <clears throat> where he says, I mean, if God wanted to, couldn't he create of mercy, people upon whom he's going to demonstrate his mercy, and vessels of wrath, people upon whom he's going to demonstrate his wrath. Is God not allowed to do that, Paul asks? Ask yourself that question. So children are not, so children are not punished for um, their parents' sins. Everyone's going to pay the penalty for their own sins, okay? Um, my dad, for example, and the sinful things he did toward me in my upbringing, I'm not going to pay the penalty for the things he did. Okay. Yeah. But, but God doesn't do, when you talk about like predestination and choosing for salvation, God doesn't do that on the basis of what our parents do either. So, for example, I was born again five years before my dad was. My, when I got saved, my dad was still a drunk. Uh, and in God's purposes, that's just what he did. Now, it's amazing. Now, with my children, they're being raised in a Christian home because I was born again before they were. But, but God is able to uh, reach into situations and to break any chain that we look at as that's going to hold them back. God's able to, he's bigger than that. He's stronger than that. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it. We're born with a sin nature, and it's because of Adam. We're born with guilt in sin. Our mothers conceived us. You know, we, we have these testimonies in Scripture about this. Um, so every single person has to stand before God, and the problem is we can't fix ourselves, and that's why every person is called to believe in Jesus Christ in order to be justified. 
and only those who have been chosen or predestined are the ones who are going to believe. That's what we've been seeing in these passages, okay? Woo! Heavy lifting today, wow! Told Katrina before the class I'm at about 70%, now it's like 40, okay? <laughs> I don't know how much left I'll have for the sermon today, but uh, other thoughts, questions about this stuff? April. Okay, yeah. Yeah, children, um, does God predestine or choose all children who yeah, die in the womb or uh, are aborted, uh, are, uh, you know, die before a certain age, perhaps, in infancy or as they're toddlers or whatever? There are different views that Christians take on this. My personal belief is that um, God does spare those lives, spare those souls, that those children will be forgiven by God. Um, Scripture doesn't get as clear on this as we wish it did, this doctrine. I mean, we would love for there to be a passage that says, and for those who are mentally incapacitated, here's what God says. For those who died you know, before a certain age, here's what God says. You know, it just doesn't do that. But we've got two main passages that guide at least my thinking on this. And one, of course, is uh, the most famous one, David with Bathsheba, the child they had. When that child passed away um, as a newborn uh, David said, he cannot come back to me, the child, but I shall go to him. So David had a view that he would see his child again, and David didn't have a view that he was going to hell. Okay, so that's one place. Another place that informs my thinking is how God treated the generation that eventually did go in and take the promised land. So you had one generation, and uh, none of those people were allowed to go to the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. The children of that generation were allowed to go into the promised land. And what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 1 is he says, Your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall inherit the land. So, he, so God links this inheriting the promised land with them not having a knowledge of good or evil. Uh, it, the Bible never gives us an age. I don't think you could ever put an age on it. I think putting a number is really silly because all children are different. And uh, we can't say... Before eight years old, you're innocent. We can't say anything like that. All children are guilty, whether they're in the womb or out of the womb. They're guilty of sin. But God is merciful and knows exactly what to do with those children who don't have a knowledge of good or evil. And we, we leave the results to God. So a final word on that that I think is probably the most comforting thing is that no person ever ends up where he or she is not supposed to because God is in control. Thanks for giving me a softball there, April. <laughs> Other thoughts or questions? <clears throat> okay, I'm moving on. <laughs> um, oh, I didn't mean to do that. All right, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 still. Who is the one doing the choosing in these verses? Who? Okay, very good. Yeah, we basically covered that when we talked about the active and passive stuff. But notice that this is all about God's choice. Verse 4, He chose us in Him. Verse 5, He predestined us. God is doing the choosing. So based on these four verses only, if this is all that you had, how would you describe the process by which enemies of God become children of God? Those who are guilty in their sin become justified or holy and blameless before God. How would you describe that process based on these verses only? How would you describe it? Okay, yeah, that's a pretty simple way to put it. God chose them. Anybody else want to add anything else to that? 
Okay, but does it say anything about us being faithful in Christ? No, not on these four verses. Now, that, that is a part of the Christian life, and we will talk about that, Brandon. But in these four verses, we don't have that. Mm-hmm. According to the kind intention of his will. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so this is what's really important about studying Scripture in context. Because what we will often do with th- topics like this, where we have preconceived notions about how we think these things should work, is we go to a passage like this and we see what we want to see instead of seeing what it says. That's why I'm asking you on these four verses only, just these. And I'm not saying ignore everything else in the Bible, but I am saying that for a moment, ignore everything else in the Bible, just for a moment. And what is this passage saying? Okay, We want to know what this passage is saying. And this passage is indicating that we are made right with God all by God's work, right? There were, there, was no, there were no actions here on the part of man that led us to the point of being holy and blameless. This is God's work. Okay. So now, okay, this, this is what you can do in Bible study. You come to a passage like this and you say, I want to understand this passage. So what we just did is we asked a bunch of basic questions. We developed the, a basic definition of what's happening in this passage. And now you can stake your flag, however, if you agree with me or if you have another interpretation. You stake your flag and you say, that's what that passage means. Will any other passage in Scripture change what that passage means? Hmm. It will add mean, it'll add things to it, but can it ever change what that passage says? No. So now what you have to do is now you'll go to other passages where you'll see stuff that looks like it's really heavy on free will stuff, like you brought up, Joe. And you stake your flag there. And now you've got to make these flags play nice together. And that is the difficulty of Christian theology, okay? That's what makes all this difficult, is you've got, on the one hand, these really, really strong passages that mean what they mean, and nothing's going to change that. On the other hand, you've got some passages where it's like, okay, now wait a second, how does that fit with what I read over here? And then you just, you, that's how, why you should be a student of the Bible. You study the Bible, and there will be disagreements that we'll have on these things as we try to work it out, and that's okay. But you've got to see what the passage says in context. Okay, that's what I'm driving at here. Other thoughts or questions at this point before I move on to the next thing? Okay, all right. Predestination is the word poroidzo, meaning to determine boundaries beforehand. And I want to show you another example of this word in the New Testament back in the book of Acts. So turn back with me to Acts chapter 4, where you can see this word used in a different context and give you more of a definition for this word, predestinate. Or predestined. Acts chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 27 and 28. You have Peter preaching, and well, Peter and John preaching to Jews, and this is pretty astounding. I think what you see here might just shock you a little bit. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. Who can read that for us? Stan, go ahead. Okay, so you've got. Peter and John, who were just interacting with their enemies, their enemies of Christians, and now they're in a prayer. And back in verse 24, they start a prayer. And in this prayer, these apostles say that the things that happened to Jesus were predestined by God to occur. How do you feel about that? 
The things that happened to Jesus, particularly his death, his crucifixion, were predestined by God to occur. Has there ever been a bigger sin than crucifying Jesus Christ? Can you think of a bigger sin? So are you all agreeing that the biggest sin that's ever taken place in human history was predestined by God? God didn't sin. We're no one saying God sinned. But but the men, but the men who drove the nails through Jesus' hands, were they sinning? Yes. Right, but that doesn't make it less sinful, does it? Like they, yeah, they killed, they killed Jesus. Well, where do you see free will in this passage, Joe? <laughs> Remember, we're emphasizing these passages right now. We'll emphasize the other ones another day, okay? <laughs> Getting feisty again, Joe. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Yeah, no, yeah, no, no one's saying this was like their final act of, you know, anything. No, they could be saved after that, yeah. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We're coming back to that a later day. <laughs> Train man's derailing me here. <clears throat> so, if we're saying here that the gravest sin that could ever happen, the crucifying of the innocent Son of Man, Jesus Christ, was predestined by God. Could we also agree that everything that happens in our lives is predestined by God? Could you look at someone who gets that bad message from the doctor and say it's predestined by God? Someone who's been abused and say that was predestined by God? Uh, uh, what? What? Yes. Is there any abuse that could happen to anybody worse than crucifying the innocent Son of Man? That's the ultimate abuse, and it's predestined by God. So, so I know that this is challenging to us. These are heavy things we're talking about. And we've all gone through difficult things. I'm not saying this as a person who's never gone through anything difficult in my life. If you know my testimony, you know the things I've gone through. But is God in control even of the terrible things? Yes, He is. Does any of that fall outside of God's goodness or God's grace or his purposes? I mean, think again back to Joseph, the life of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50. After Joseph had gone through all these things, he had been sold by his brothers into slavery. He had been in prison. He had been gone through all this stuff. What is Joseph's final analysis here? He says, that's exactly it. His brothers meant it for evil but God meant it for good. That means God had that in his purposes. Okay? Now, again, I'm not saying all this happens and we're all just robots or all just pawns on a chessboard. That's not the result, okay? That's, so I know we're emphasizing the predestined stuff and Joe's trying to pull us back into the free will stuff, okay? Humans still make choices and humans are responsible for their choices. Absolutely, 100%. But those choices do not fall outside of the control of God. God is big enough for there to be a both and there instead of an either or. Okay, okay i got to keep moving. Um, this is from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament talking about predestination. It says, the omniscient God, that means all-knowing, the all-knowing God has determined everything in advance, both persons and things in salvation history, with Jesus Christ as the goal. That's how that's summed up there. Back to Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. 
Still more questions on these four verses that I want to ask you or more thoughts I want to share with you. There is a present reality for the Christian. He or she possesses every spiritual blessing currently. Did you catch that in this passage? That we've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ, verse 3, in the heavenly places in Christ. We possess all spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, this life isn't all that there's going to be. That's not what that means. But what it means is we have access to every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ now. And even though it says in the heavenly places, there's a sense in which we are in the heavenly places now. If you look at chapter 2, just the next chapter over, at chapter, chapter 2, verse 6, it says, God, in our salvation, God has raised us up with Him, with Jesus, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's something that God has done in your life. If you're a Christian today, if you've been saved by God, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, and you have every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. That's a pretty big salvation that we're talking about. And the only way we receive these blessings is by the sovereign, active grace of God, which is what we've been reading about in that first chapter, that God, in His grace, has chosen to act upon those whom He has chosen. So let's look at verses 7 to 14 now. I'll have someone read that, and I'll uh, just share some thoughts afterwards. I don't have nearly as many questions from here on out, but Ephesians 1, 7 to 14. Who could read that passage for us? Who's got it? All right. There are a few things to see in there. So, uh, we see in verse 7, we have redemption in Jesus' blood. Is there any other way we could be redeemed apart from the death of Jesus Christ? No. There we go. Now we're getting softball questions. No, no other way. Our forgiveness is according to the riches of God's grace. Did you see that also in verse 7? The way that we are forgiven is according to the riches of God's grace. His doing, His grace, we are forgiven. Verse 8, His grace has been lavished on the believer. That's a good word. We don't use that word enough these days, lavished. His grace has been lavished on us. Could you, do you need more of God's grace? In a sense, yes. But for salvation, no. He's given you all grace, hasn't he, for salvation. Okay. Now, day by day, we need his grace. We rely on his grace. But for salvation, he's given us all of his grace in Jesus. The mystery of God's will has been revealed. Verse 9, that's an astounding statement. It says that he has made known to us the mystery of his will that he had purposed in Jesus. That's probably something you wouldn't necessarily agree with. I don't know everything about God's will, right? The mystery of His will has been revealed. Well, it takes a little more explanation, and we're not going to do that today. We'll talk about it some other time. Everything is some other time if I don't want to talk about it today, okay? God's purpose is found in Christ, we see in verse 9. God's purpose, according to the kind intention which He had purposed in Him. In Jesus. All things are summed up in Christ, verse 10. We just saw that quote from uh, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament that Jesus is the goal. That's what we see in verse 10. The summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. It's all being summed up in Jesus. And and this is another one of those junctures where, just as a real basic point, I want to say, we've talked about this multiple times. If you're a Christian, 
And you say that you can be of another faith and God is okay with that? You can reject Jesus and believe in Muhammad, or you could reject Jesus and be an atheist, or you could reject Jesus and be, you know, a Hindu or whatever, and God's cool with it all? God's purpose is found in Christ, and all things are summed up in Christ. How could God give the thumbs up to anything outside of Jesus? Right? How could God approve of anything outside of Jesus Christ when all things are summed up in the person and work of Jesus Christ? And our predestination results in an inheritance, verse 11. So we are not just predestined that we would believe in Jesus now, but there's an inheritance that's coming. We have, an, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose. Verse 12, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. We'll enjoy this inheritance into eternity, all to the praise of God's glory, who is working all things together to accomplish His own will. A very strong verse on this is verse 11, that He has predestined all things according to His purpose. He works all things after the counsel of His will. So look down at verse 11 if you've got your Bible with you. Look at verse 11 and look where it says, All things. And ask yourself, does that mean all things? Okay, that's another little exercise we can do. All things, according to the counsel of His will. All things. Okay. Our promised salvation results in the praise and glory of God. It says in verse 12, to the praise of His glory. And then it gives this amazing order in verse 13. Maybe it starts in 12. No, verse 13, it, it gives this amazing order of what happens in our salvation. What are the steps in which this occurs? Well, first in verse 13, it says, you hear the gospel. Okay, So step one is having heard the gospel. What's step two? What comes after that? After listening to the message of truth? Belief. There's believing the gospel that comes second. And then what comes third? Yeah. Sealing by the Holy Spirit, being sealed by the Spirit. Isn't that amazing? You get verse 13 that just kind of lays out the order there. You hear the gospel. You, no one is saved apart from hearing the message of salvation. Paul says in Romans 10, how will they hear without a preacher? We've got to send preachers out there. Hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, and then the result of the belief is being sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. And He is our down payment, verse 14. He's given as a pledge. That word in the New American Standard Bible for pledge is the same word as down payment. He's a guarantee of the future things to come. And if you want to cross-reference this with Ephesians 4.30, you can just turn a page or two over to chapter 4, verse 30. It gives us a time indicator about how long we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. It says in Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He keeps us until the day that we are totally, fully redeemed, even in body. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Okay? A lot of observations there in Ephesians 1. More thoughts or questions here at this point. We've got about 10 minutes left in our class, and I want to make sure I can entertain any questions that are out there. All right, well, let's come back to this time stuff that we were talking about earlier. Two ways to consider how this works. I think that's where I'm going next. All right, so um, with this in mind, thinking of answering this question of which one is it, the top solution or the bottom solution, 
Let's go back to Ephesians 1 here and look at all the times it says according to. And that's based on the New American Standard, at least. I don't know if other translations will say something different than according to. But find the equivalent if you have something else and look for all the according to passages. So, for instance, we have one right there at the beginning in verse 5 where it says that we were predestined according to the kind intention of His will. Do you see any other according to phrases? Okay, verse 9, what does it say? Okay, good. So according to His good pleasure, or I'd say kind intention again, good. Other ones. Verse 11, we have attained an inheritance who He predestined us according to His purpose. Good. Seven, what does it say? Okay, we are forgiven according to the riches of God's grace. Good. Maybe we got all of them? can't remember. Let's see. Riches of His grace, His kind intention, His purpose. Your salvation, this predestining act of God, is according to His will, His grace, His intentions, His purposes. And your... <laughs> yeah, your path. Okay, yeah. I was thinking your possessive, your like saying, and my nothing, right? But uh, to take it as the contraction, and you are passive through the, through the process. Okay, yes. What does that tell us about salvation? What are some things that this tells us about our salvation in Jesus? Can't earn it. Yeah. I mean, imagine, just, just think about how different this message is from Ephesians 1. From a system of works where it says, if you give 10%, if you show up and you know, do your you know, service with this thing or that thing, if you uh, go off here and do this in a faraway land, if you go do that, I mean, uh, get baptized, you know, take communion seven times and stand on your head or whatever, and you have this long list of all these things you have to do. How radically different it is from what the Bible teaches. I mean, radically different. Salvation here is, is totally, absolutely wrapped up in God's work. None of our work. Totally in God's work. So that's a great takeaway. Yes, the, the if-then formation. <clears throat> if, if you blank, then what do you get? You know, the... Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, that's typically how that works. Yeah. Um, there is no if-then in Ephesians 1, is there? Praise God for that. According to these passages, what did God look for in people as He predestined them to salvation? <laughs> is there anything in this passage that indicates that God was looking for something in the objects of His predestining grace? So, as Wayne Grudem words it, election is an act of God before creation in which He chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of His sovereign good pleasure. That's a long sentence, but a good sentence. So, um, is Wayne Grudem going top solution or bottom solution here? Top, yeah. And if you study these passages, like we just did, Ephesians 1, Romans 8, Romans 9, oops, Romans 10, uh, 
Romans 11, if you study those passages, um, that's where you end up. The cause is God, and the effect is man's faith. And that faith is directly tied back to God's choosing. It's not the other way around. Joe. God shows no partiality, Scripture says. So we can't think of it as favorites, can we? No. No, that's not true. Partiality means that you're showing preference to certain people because they're doing something that you like or they're making you happy or whatever the case may be. There's something in them or about them that you're choosing. So like uh, being racist is being partial because there's something about them that you like. But none of this has to do with us doing anything for God to appease him, does it? This is all God's good pleasure, his purpose, his intention, his will. It's not that, uh, you know, we, we all started out before him even, and he picked the ones that he liked the best. He chose vessels of mercy that he might demonstrate his mercy and his grace and his love by saving Joe Styers. It's not him showing that he's partial. It's him showing that he's gracious. Other thoughts or questions on this stuff? The whole God choosing as the cause and man believing as the effect of business. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Jesus taught on this all the time. Yeah. Yes, I mean, so a, a couple of passages that come to mind of what Jesus taught. You will know them by their fruits, Jesus taught. Now, these are people who say that they're teachers or say that they're Christians who say that they're whatever, but then by their fruits, they show themselves to be false believers or false teachers. Okay, so there's one passage. There's another passage in Matthew 7 where Jesus says, in that day, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is a true believer. Um, There will be people who will say, Lord, didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all of this in the name of Jesus? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. So there is certainly a possibility that someone would have a profession of faith while inwardly being a devil, essentially being a Judas, hanging around the disciples but never really believing. Yeah, good. Okay, other thoughts or questions? Okay, let me give you a couple more quotes to end. One from MacArthur and Mayhew and then one from John Frame. They say, The decree of election is the free and sovereign choice of God made in eternity past to set his love on certain individuals and on the basis of nothing in themselves but solely because of the good pleasure of his will to choose them to be saved from sin and damnation to inherit the blessings of eternal life through the mediatorial work of Christ. He saw Wayne Grudem's long sentence and said, I could do better than that. And there's one one long sentence. I was waiting for the period and... There's just one sentence. Okay, so there you go. There's another way of summing up what's happening in Ephesians 1. John Frame says, the kind, This kind of election is unconditional. God chooses us before we choose Him. Our faithful response is a gift of His grace. So election to salvation is not based on anything we do. It is entirely gracious. It is also eternal before the foundation of the world. From the beginning, before the ages began, with appropriate cross-references for that. Okay, Okay. well, I just put a lot of weight on you today. Um, Sorry, not sorry. Just studying the Bible. That's just 
It's what we're here to do, okay? And uh, we'll continue doing that as we go into the next service and sing together and pray together and read the Word of God together, all right? Let me pray for us and then we'll be dismissed. God, we thank you so much that you are in control and that there is nothing that falls outside of your purposes, but that you tie all things together and work all things together for good for those of us who love you and have been called according to your purpose. God, we trust you and we ask that you would build up more and more faith in us, that we would serve you well with what you give us in this life. 